I'd just like to remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast. Should you wish to subscribe to the membership feed, please go to thehistoryofpodcast.com and click on the PayPal subscription button. Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 74, The Debate. Now that the war in Spain is finished, as is the Greek theatre and the war in Italy, aside from Margot's short campaign in Liguria, we now need to cover events in Sicily before we can begin the final chapter of the war, Scipio's invasion of Africa. When we last left Sicily in episode 59, Syracuse had just been captured by Marcellus in 212. Syracuse was easily the greatest city on the island, and capturing it was a real coup. There were still things to be done, though. Marcellus took stock of the situation and dealt with the various towns requesting peace. Those that had gone over to Rome before Syracuse was taken were treated generously, while those who waited until Syracuse fell were treated like defeated enemies. It was all very straightforward. There was only one real complication to the situation. Aggregentum. You'll hopefully remember Aggregentum from our episodes a long time ago from the First Punic War, but I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. It was a long time ago. Aggregentum was one of the most powerful cities in Sicily. It was located about halfway along the south coast of the island, and had been a Carthaginian power centre. It had returned to Carthage once they invaded the island during the Second Punic War, and now that Syracuse had been lost, it was their last base on the island. Hanno and Epiclides were still in command, but Hannibal sent a third general to replace the defeated Hippocrates, Mutinies, a man described by Livy as a Libby Phoenician. He was a student of Hannibal's and a very able figure, and he took command of the Numidian cavalry on the island. He had early successes, emboldening the garrison at Agrigentum so that they left the safety of the walls, advancing to the river Himera. When Marcellus heard about all this, he advanced to a location about four miles away to see what would happen next. Mutinese was not one to delay. He immediately attacked the Roman outposts with much success. There was something of a battle the next day, which he also did well in, but a mutiny among the Numidians forced Mutinese to withdraw. He told Hanno and Epiclides to avoid battle while he was away, which, as you can imagine, greatly offended Hanno and Epiclides. Who was this new guy telling them what they could and couldn't do? They had longer. So, they offered battle, and Marcellus felt like he had no choice but to accept. Roman spirits were raised when some Numidian deserters told him that they wouldn't fight the Romans. They were not unaffected by the mutiny Mutinies was dealing with, and this gave the Romans a crucial advantage. The result was a short fight. The two armies charged, and the Carthaginians broke, fleeing back to Agrigentum. It was Marcellus's last battle in Sicily, and he returned to Italy. You can go back to episode 63 to follow his story. Once Marcellus left, a Carthaginian force of 8,000 infantry landed, along with 3,000 Numidian cavalry, and began to cause trouble, as towns started to defect. Mutinies had suppressed the troops, who were wreaking havoc. The Roman troops, who had not been allowed to leave with Marcellus, nor winter in the towns, were becoming restless. 
It is a testament to the skills of the praetor Cornelius that revolt did not break out among the Roman troops. That last sentence is all the information we have for Sicily in 211. So now we advance into 210. The consul Livinius arrived in the province to take control of the situation. Agrigentum was still well defended, and the command was held by Hanno, who was the Carthaginian commander-in-chief in Sicily. Mutinies continued his raiding around Sicily with his Numidian cavalry, and was doing very well, but this was causing tensions in the Carthaginian command. Hanno, as should be clear from his reckless attack of Marcellus against the instruction of mutinies, was very jealous of the young African upstarts. Every Carthaginian success on the island was because of mutinies, and mutinies got all the glory, while Hanno got no credit for keeping control of Agrigentum, which allowed mutinies to go do what he was doing. Hanno decided to assert his own authority on the situation by relieving mutinies of his command and giving it to his son instead. What Hanno wasn't counting on was that he was not well liked and mutinies was. He wasn't going to give up his position of power without a fight, and so he turned to Livinius and offered to hand over to him Agrigentum. The Numidians killed the guards and seized one of the town gates, allowing a small party of Romans to enter, and they marched to the Forum. Hanno thought this was just another Numidian mutiny, and so went to investigate, but when he saw the Romans, he fled to the sea with a small group, including Epiclides. They fled to Africa, abandoning Sicily. The rest of the Carthaginians didn't even put up a fight. They meekly surrendered. The leading citizens were killed, and the rest sold into slavery. The rest of the island quickly calmed down, and could begin to return to agriculture and producing food for Italy. The war in Sicily was over. That really didn't take very long. I must say, I thought there would be more material than this, or I'd have just attached this to the end of episode 59, but there we are. Sicily is finished, and we can now enter the war's endgame. The year is 205 BC. The place is Rome. Scipio and Licinius have just been elected consuls for the year. Scipio felt that he had been elected to the consulship with the objective of bringing the war to an end, and that if he were to do this, then he would need to take command of the African theatre. This may not sound that surprising to modern ears, but to the Romans it was pretty significant. A commander had never before been allotted Africa as a military theatre to have the command in, and it would also dispense with the traditional determining command by lots. There were many in the Senate who opposed the plan completely, the most senior of which was Quintus Fabius Maximus. I hope you'll excuse me for quoting his speech and Scipio's response in full, at least as it is preserved by Livy in Book 28, Chapters 40-45. This is a rather important set piece in Livy's narrative. So, the Senate was discussing Scipio's proposed African campaign, and we'll begin. This plan of campaign was by no means approved by the leaders of the Senate, and while the rest expressed no definite opinion, either because they were too afraid to do so, or in the hope of ingratiating themselves with their betters, the question was put to Quintus Fabius Maximus, who replied in the following terms. I am aware, gentlemen, that many of you feel that we are debating today an issue which has already been decided, and that to express an opinion upon fighting in Africa 
as if it were still an open question, would be merely to waste words. But I for one fail to see how the assignment of Africa to our brave and energetic consul can be taken as settled. When there has been no resolution in the Senate, and no order from the people, that it should be a theatre of operations for the coming year at all. If it is so then, in my opinion, the consul is at fault, who insults the Senate by pretending to bring a motion on a matter which is already settled, not the senator who takes his turn to speak on the subject under consideration. I know very well that in opposing this excessive hurry to invade Africa, I shall have to face hostile criticism on two counts. First, I shall be blamed for my natural tendency to avoid precipitate action, which the young are at liberty to call fear or indolence, providing they are willing to recognise that, though other men's strategy has always at first sight worn a more alluring look, mine has proved better in practice. Secondly, I shall incur the charge of ill-will and envy of the daily increasing fame of a brave consul. From this latter suspicion, surely I am defended by my past life and character, and by the distinctions I have won in my dictatorship and my five consulships, and so much honour as both soldier and statesman, that I might as well feel I have had too much of it, not too little. And if that is no defence, then my age surely is, for how can I compete with a man who was younger even than my own son? Remember the attack made upon me by my master of horse when I was dictator, Yet, though I was still at the height of my powers and in the full tide of great events, no one, either in the Senate or out of it, heard me utter a word of protest against making his power equal with mine, a thing which had never been heard of before. I wanted by deeds, not by words, to force a man, who in the opinion of some had been put on a level with myself, to admit before man days were past that I was the better soldier. It is then likely that now, at the end of my career, I should enter into a jealous rivalry with one in the very flower of his manhood for the prize of this African campaign. That the task of conducting it, if refused to him, should be assigned to me, an old man worn out not by work only, but by the sheer burden of many years. My duty is to live and die with such glory as I have already won. I prevented Hannibal from defeating us, and thus enabled you, who were young and strong, to bring him finally to his knees. In my own case, Scipio, my country has always been more precious than what men might save me, so, in all fairness, I ask you to pardon me if I do not rate your glory above the welfare of Rome. If there were no war in Italy, or if the enemy on Italian soil was such that no glory could be won by his defeat, then... Indeed, anyone who tried to keep you at home, even though he did so for the public good, might well seem determined to rob you of the possible glory of an African campaign. But our enemy is Hannibal. With an army still intact, he has been entrenched in Italy for nearly 14 years. Can it be then that you, Scipio, will not be satisfied with your fame if during your consulship you rid Italy of an enemy who has inflicted upon us so much loss of life, so many defeats, and enjoy, like Gaius Lutatius, in our former struggle with Carthage, the distinction of bringing the present war to a successful conclusion. It cannot be, unless indeed Hamilcar is supposed to be a better general than Hannibal, that war a greater one than this, and our former victory a more splendid than our next is likely to be, only granted that under your leadership we win it. 
Would you rather have forced Hamilcar Drapana, or down from Mount Eryx, than have driven Hannibal and the Carthaginians from Italy? Not even you, not even if you took more pleasure in glory won than in glory hoped for, would have been prouder of ending the war in Spain than of ending the war in Italy. Hannibal is formidable still. To prefer to fight elsewhere may well look more like fear than contempt. Why, then, do you not gird yourself for the campaign which lies before you? Tell us no more that when you have crossed to Africa, Hannibal will surely follow you. Cut short those devious ways. March direct to where Hannibal at this moment is and fight him better there. You want the victor's palm for ending the war with Carthage? Remember, nonetheless, that it is only natural to defend your own before attacking what is another's. Let there be peace in Italy before there is war in Africa. Let us feel safe ourselves before we proceed to threaten others. If, under your auspices and command, both ends can be achieved, beat Hannibal here first, then cross the sea and capture Carthage. If one or the other of these victories must be left to your successor in the consulship, the first one will prove the greater and more famous, just as it will because of the cause of the second. Situated as we are now, even apart from the fact that public funds cannot support two separate armies, one in Italy, one in Africa, and no resources are left for maintaining fleets and furnishing supplies, the magnitude of the danger we run is surely patent to everyone. Licinius will be fighting in Italy, Scipio in Africa. Now just suppose, which God forbid, I shudder to speak of such a thing, but what has happened may once happen again, just suppose, I say, that Hannibal is victorious and marches on Rome. Are we then, and not before, to recall you from Africa, as we did Fulvius from Capua? Remember, too, that even in Africa, the fortunes of war may be fickle. That warning from your own house, from your father and uncle, killed within thirty days of each other, and their armies destroyed, and that in another country, where by years of great achievement on land and sea, they had won for your family and for Rome, an honourable name amongst foreign nations. Time would fail me if I tried to enumerate all the kings and commanders who rashly invaded foreign soil with utter disaster to their armies and themselves. The Athenians, for instance, for once forgot their native prudence and, on the suggestion of a young citizen as venturesome in character as he was noble in blood, abandoned the war in Greece and sailed with a great fleet to Sicily, where, in a single naval defeat, they brought irreparable ruin upon their once prosperous community. But all this is far away and long ago. Let us take warning from this same Africa of yours, and from Marcus Atilius Regulus, so notable an example of the fickleness of fortune. Believe me, Scipio, when you sight Africa from the sea, all your adventures in Spain will seem to have been no more than child's play. What comparison is there between the two? With no threat from hostile fleets, you sailed along the coast of Italy and Gaul, putting in at the friendly town of Emporii. You landed your men and led them to friends and allies at Taraco, through the country which held no hint of danger. From Taraco your route lay past a chain of Roman strongpoints. On the Ebro were the armies of your father and uncle, rendered all the more eager for a battle by the very disaster of their general's death. There too in command was that fine soldier Lucius Marcius, appointed, indeed, not by the regular course, but by the men's votes to meet the emergency. 
yet equal in all the arts of war to the famous generals. Had he but possessed the distinction of noble blood and the normal course of promotion, you captured New Carthage at your leisure, for not one of the three Carthaginian armies attempted to defend their allies. As for your other achievements, and I do not belittle them, they are in no other way to be compared with a campaign in Africa, where there is no harbour open to our fleet, no conquered territory, no allied settlement nor friendly king, nowhere to stand, nowhere to go, but wherever you turn your eyes, nothing but hostility and danger. Perhaps you trust Syphax and the Numidians. You have done so once. Beware of trusting them again. A bold move cannot always succeed. Often treachery wins confidence in little things, so that when the moment is ripe, it may betray and reap a large reward. The enemy did not defeat your father and uncle of the field until their Celtiberian friends had first betrayed them. Nor were you yourself in as much danger from the enemy's generals, Margo and Hasdrubal, as from Indibilis and Mandonius, who you had received under your protection. Can you trust the Numidians when your own troops have mutinied? Both Syphax and Massinissa would like to be supreme in Africa. While the Carthaginians themselves are naturally jealous of all rivalry, as things are now, while there is still no threat of foreign invasion, there is mutual suspicion and jealousy between them, and every reason for the conflict. But show them Roman arms and foreign troops, and they will very soon unite to extinguish the fire which threatens to destroy them all. They will be the same Carthaginians who fought in defence of Spain, but very different will be the defence of their own city walls, the temples of their gods, their altars and hearts, when trembling wives lead them from there on the way to the battlefield, and little children fall tumbling in their way. And what again if the Carthaginians, deriving confidence from the unanimity of Africa, the loyal support of allied princes and the strength of their own walls, and seeing Italy denounced of the protection of your army, and you yourself no longer there, should take the offensive again and send a fresh invading force against us, or order Margot, who is known to have left the Balearics and to be sailing already along the coast of the Alpine Ligurians to join forces with Hannibal. We should be in the same sort of danger as we were not long ago when Hasdrubal made his descent into Italy. Hasdrubal, whom you, though you now propose to blockade not only Carthage but all Africa, allowed to slip through your fingers. You will say you had defeated him. Then so much the less, for your own sake as well as the country's, should I have been willing to see a beaten man given passage into Italy. Allow us to put down your military skill everything which has turned out well for you and for Rome, and dismiss the failures as due to the chances of war and the instability of fortune. Then the better and braver soldier you are, the more eager is your native city and all Italy, to keep for themselves so potent a defender. Not even you can shut your eyes to the truth that the very head and seat of the war is where Hannibal is. Indeed, you claim that your objective in going to Africa is to draw Hannibal after you. So, whether you fight here or there, it is with Hannibal you have to deal. Say then, will you be stronger alone in Africa, or here in Italy, supported by your colleague's army? Is not the recent example of the consuls Nero and Livius sufficient proof of the difference? And, as for Hannibal, in which circumstances is he likely to be the stronger when he is boxed up in a corner of Brutium, still vainly asking for reinforcements from home, 
all went close to Carthage, with all Africa at his back. It is surely an odd sort of strategy to prefer to fight when your own numbers are cut by half, and those of the enemy greatly increased, rather than when two armies of our own had the chance of dealing with a single enemy force, already exhausted by the innumerable struggles of a long and exacting campaign. Remember and compare what you are proposing to do with what your father did. Your father started for Spain, but returned to Italy from his province in order to meet Hannibal as he came down from Alps. You, on the contrary, with Hannibal in Italy, are preparing to leave it, not because you think that such a move would help the country, but rather that it would redound to your own glory and credit, just as without legal authorization or any decree of the Senate, you, a general of the Roman people, left your province and army and entrusted to a couple of ships the fortunes of the state and the majesty of our empire, the safety of which was at the moment immediately bound up with your own. In my view, gentlemen of the Senate, Publius Cornelius Scipio has been made consul, not for his own personal benefit, but to serve the country, and us, and the armed forces that have been raised for the protection of Rome and Italy, not for arrogant consuls who fancy themselves kings to whisk away to any part of the world they please. Apart from the aptness to the circumstances of Fabius's speech, his personal authority and his established reputation for soundness of judgment had a powerful effect upon a large part of the Senate, especially senior members, who were more inclined to accept the advice of the old statesman and warrior than to praise the high and adventurous spirits of his young rival. Scipio is said to have delivered the following address. Fabius himself, gentlemen, at the beginning of his speech, mentioned that he might be suspected of deliberate disparagement of myself, and, though I should never venture to accuse so great a man of such a thing, nonetheless, the suspicion of it has not been fully cleared away. Maybe his facts are wrong, maybe only his expression of them. To obviate the charge of envy, he made a great deal of his own achievements, and the high positions he has held, as if it were only from mere nobodies that I near fear rivalry, and not from a man who, because of his preeminence, a preeminence which I admit that I too am striving to attain, is unwilling that I should be thought his equal. Again he has represented himself as an old man whose achievements are in the past, and me, as even younger than his son, as if the desire for fame were coextensive only with the span of human life, and the greatest part of it were not what lives on in the memory of posterity. I myself am convinced that the noblest minds compare themselves not only with their contemporaries, but with great men in every age. Nor do I pretend, Fabius, that I do not wish to rival your fame. Indeed, if you will pardon my saying so, my ambition is to surpass it if I can. I hope your attitude towards me, and mine towards younger men, may never be such that we are unwilling for anyone else to come in time to be as we are, for jealousy like that would be harmful not only to its immediate acts, but to the country as a whole, indeed to the world. Fabius remarks, gentlemen, on the danger I should encounter if I crossed into Africa, so that he seemed to be anxious about me personally, as well as about my army and the welfare of our country. Whence this sudden solicitude for me? When my father and uncle were killed and their two armies almost annihilated, when the Spanish provinces were lost and four Carthaginian generals, each in command of an army, 
forcibly held the whole country in the grip of fear, when an officer was needed to take command, and I was the only man to offer himself the task, nobody else having dared to submit his name, when, finally, the Roman people conferred the supreme command upon me at the age of four and twenty years, why was it that no one said a word about my youth, or the enemy's strength, or the difficulties that the campaign would involve, or the recent defeat of my father and uncle? Are we the victims today of some calamity in Africa, even greater than what we had then suffered in Spain? Are there more powerful armies in Africa now, or more and better generals than there were in Spain? Was I then an older and more experienced commander than I am now? Or does it seem more natural to fight the Carthaginians in Spain than in Africa? No doubt it is easy to belittle my achievements, the utter defeat of four Carthaginian armies in numeral towns taken by storm or terrified into submission, the conquest of the entire country up to the Atlantic Ocean, involving the surrender of countless fierce tribes and their petty kings, the complete recovery of Spain, so that no trace of opposition is left in the country, and God knows it would be just as easy, should I return victorious from Africa, to belittle those very things of which the danger is now being so grossly exaggerated in order to keep me at home. According to Fabius, there is no means of approach to Africa and no open harbours. He reminds us of the capture of Regulus, as if Regulus had come to grief the moment he landed, but he does not seem to remember that even that most unlucky general found African harbours easily accessible, and in the first of his campaign, was highly successful, remaining, so far as the Carthaginian generals are concerned, unconquered until the end. So, the supposed lack of harbours can be counted out as a deterrent. If that disaster had occurred in this war instead of the last, lately, instead of forty years ago, what could have stopped me from crossing to Africa after the capture of Regulus any more than from crossing to Spain after the death of the Scipios? I should not admit that the birth of the Spartan Xanthippus was a luckier event for Carthage than mine was for Rome, and my confidence would grow by the very fact that the valour of a single man could put such weight onto the scales. Indeed, we also, apparently, have to be told how the Athenians neglected the danger on their doorstep and rashly undertook an expedition to Sicily. Well, as you have time to tell us tales from Greek history, why did you not rather choose the story of Agothocles, king of Syracuse, who, when Sicily had for a long time been suffering the devastations of a war with Carthage, crossed to this same Africa and successfully diverted hostilities to the country of the invaders? But why bother to use old stories from foreign lands to show the value of taking the offensive, by removing the threat from oneself, of bringing the other man into peril? Can there be any better or more impressive illustration of this truth than Hannibal himself? There is a big difference between devastating your enemy's country and seeing your own ravaged with fire and sword. It is in the bosom of the aggressor, not the defender, that the heart beats the highest. Moreover, the unknown always brings its especial dread, but once in the enemy's country, you have a near view of his circumstances, good and bad alike. Hannibal never hoped that so many of the Italian communities would join him, but they did so after our defeat at Cannae. In Africa, the Carthaginians, treacherous friends, oppressive and tyrannical masters as they are, 
are far less likely even than we were to find the country stable and strong in their support. We, even when we were deserted by our allies, stood firm by our own strength, our native Roman soldiery. But Carthage has no native citizen troops. Her soldiers are mercenaries, Africans or Numidians, all fickle as the wind, ready to change sides as a breath. Only let there be no delay at this end, and you will hear at the same moment that I have crossed the sea, that Africa is ablaze and that Carthage is already beset, yes, and the very sound of Hannibal's fleet making its preparations to sail. You may expect more frequent and more encouraging dispatches from Africa than you used to receive from Spain. There is much to raise these hopes in my heart, and the fortune of the Roman people. The gods who witnessed the violation of the treaty by our enemies, and the two princes, Syphax and Massinissa, upon whose word I shall rely, though not without due precautions to protect myself from treachery. Action on the spot will reveal many things, which distance now renders obscure. It is the duty of a commander worth his salt to seize his good fortune when it offers, and turn to good use any unexpected stroke of luck. Yes, Fabius, I shall have the antagonist you give me, Hannibal himself, but he won't keep me here. I shall draw him after me. I shall force him to fight on his native ground, and the prize of victory will be Carthage, not a handful of dilapidated Brutian forts. Nor will the state suffer harm, here, in Italy, while I am crossing the sea, landing my troops in Africa, and moving towards Carthage, for it would not be an insult to suggest that the service which you, Fabius, were able to render to our country when the victory was here, there, and everywhere in Italy, as the whim took him, could not now be rendered when Hannibal is shaken and near to breaking. By our brave consul Publius Licinius, who was refused to draw lots for service abroad in order to not be absent from his religious duties in Rome as Pontifex Maximus. Even if the war were not more quickly ended by the strategy I propose, it would still be worthwhile, for the dignity and reputation of the Roman people would surely be heightened in the eyes of foreign princes and peoples once it was seen that we had the spirit to invade Africa as well as the courage to defend Italy. We must not let the belief spread that no Roman general dares to do what Hannibal did, or that while in the First Punic War, when we were fighting for Sicily, Africa was again and again attacked by Roman fleets and armies, now, in the Second, when the prize is Italy, Africa is left without action. Italy has suffered long. Let her for a while have rest. It is Africa's turn to be devastated by fire and sword. It is time that a Roman army threatened the gates of Carthage, rather than we should again see from our walls the rampart of an enemy camp. Let Africa be the theatre of war henceforward. For fourteen years all the horrors of war have fallen thick upon us, terror and defeat, the devastation of our farms, the desertion of our friends. It is to her now to suffer the same. It is enough to have spoken of high policy, of the now imminent campaign and the division of duties under discussion. It would be a long speech and of little concern to you gentlemen if I, following Fabius's lead, when he belittled what I did in Spain, tried to bring his military reputation into disrepute while bolstering up my own. I shall do neither, gentlemen, in moderation and restraint of speech. If in nothing else, you will see the young man surpass the old. Such has been the quality of my life and work, 
that I am quite capable of saying no more, and of resting content with the opinion which you have formed without any help from me. End quote. Fabius' speech was considered the more persuasive of the two, but one Scipio confirmed that he would abide by the decision of the Senate, without making a proposal to the assemblies a bill to give him the African theatre, it was agreed that one of the consuls would have command fighting Hannibal in Italy, and the other was given a fleet to go to Sicily, and, if he felt it was in the public interest, sail onwards to Africa. But, as this episode has become a monster at over half an hour, it is probably time to stop the narrative for this week. If you want to go to the website to subscribe to the membership feed, you can do so at thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can visit us on social media at facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast or on Twitter at historyjamie. Feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.